Is this house a good price compared to others in the area? Are prices going up or down? If I don't make an offer right this very moment, will I miss my chance? These are just some of the questions a home buyer might ask. And these are the sorts of questions an agent who is a Realtor can help answer. Because Realtors have the expertise, data, and access to specialty training to help you navigate the process of buying a home. They provide support, guidance, and have your back every step of the way. That's what Realtors do, because that's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Longest Shortest Time is brought to you by Invite. Your genes can tell you if you're 12% French or 6% Italian. They can also tell you a lot about your future health. When you take an Invite genetic test, they search for meaningful health information, like whether you're at an increased risk for inherited cancer or heart disease. Based on your results, you may be able to take steps to potentially lower that risk. Learn more by visiting Invite.com. That's I-N-V-I-T-A-E.com. Hey guys, here at The Longest Shortest Time, we are on a three-week hiatus before we bring you our next awesome season. Um, We're cooking up some great stuff for you, including an entire series on working moms. And in the meantime, we're bringing you a very special episode from our friend Dan Pashman at The Sporkful. Hey, Dan. Hey, Hillary. So, Dan, what have you got for us today? We've done a couple of series on The Sporkful about race and culture and food, and we just launched a new one called Your Mom's Food. And it's sort of about the complications that can come up when we try to pass our culture on from one generation to another through food. And today, with uh, Longest Shortest Time Listeners, we're going to share part of the first episode, and that one is all about adoption. Yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed listening to this. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, th- we were excited about this one. It was something that I didn't know much about until we started working on the episode. Kids who are adopted from other countries and other cultures will try to, with the help of their adoptive parents, connect to their culture of origin through food. So in this segment, we'll hear from two adult Korean adoptees whose white parents exposed them to Korean food when they were kids, but yet they still grew up feeling like it wasn't enough. Yeah, and it's it's just a fascinating look at connecting with your family, like your your long-lost family through food. Yeah, I've certainly learned a lot about the experience of adoptive parents and adopted kids and um, and the complications that can, can come up. Cool. Well, let's play the story. Korean adoption in the U.S. really started taking off in the 50s after the Korean War. Back then, it was mostly mixed-race kids whose fathers were American soldiers. As South Korea recovered from the war and industrialized, more adoption agencies sprung up here and there. In the 60s and 70s, the children were fully Korean, and it was big business. By 1985, there were an average of 24 children leaving South Korea every day. Over the course of 60 years, it was the largest adoption exodus from one country in history. Skylar Swenson was part of that diaspora. She was born in South Korea in 87, adopted as a baby by a white family in the U.S., grew up in a pretty white area of Denver. Most of her exposure to Korean food and culture came once a year. There were these culture camps, they were called, and they were in the mountains a week long, and they were specifically for families with kids who were adopted from Korea. And they were a way to kind of introduce uh, adoptive families to Korean culture. And so myself and my brother, who's also adopted from Korea, 
And our parents would go, we'd camp, and then there'd be different workshops and different kinds of activities that really were the foundation of our knowledge of Korean culture. You know, it ranged from building, like, Korean kites as a kid, like toys, to eating kimchi probably for the first time. So when you had those first experiences eating Korean food, how did it make you feel? I just remember, like, you know, styrofoam plates with japchae and kimchi and bulgogi and, you know, very, like, sweet and kind of oily foods. I liked it. I think I enjoyed it. But um, Did it make you feel more Korean to eat it? I think I always sensed that, like, this, the food at that camp was dumbed down for, like, a, uh, an American palate for more our white parents than for us. After camp, I didn't go home and think like, oh, mom, we got to eat bulgogi now. Like that was the one space in our lives that we kind of compartmentalized. We'd go to this camp in the mountains and that was where we were Korean for a little bit. And that was where we had exposure to Korean food. And then once we left, that was kind of it. And are these happy memories? It was important for us then to see other families that looked like our family And so I I value that experience. And I think that we did have fun. But then by the time I was maybe in middle school, my parents would ask us if we wanted to go back. And we kind of said, you know, we'd rather go to soccer camp. I think we resisted wanting to associate ourselves with, you know, this particular camp because it made us feel different or other. I think we preferred to just do what our other white kid friends were doing. I really enjoyed going to culture camp. This is Amy Meehung Ginther. In many ways, her story is similar to Skylar's. Born in Korea in the 80s, adopted by a white family in the U.S., raised in a mostly white town, summer trips to Korean culture camp. But her feelings about camp are different. It was a place for me to spend time with friends. And as I got older, it was, oh, I can see these friends only during this time. So it was a a feeling of reunion with people. And I think at a young age, I I had a sense that hanging out with this type of community meant less questions would be asked. And I wouldn't have to go through this whole like, oh, I'm adopted. And this is what Korea is. There was this immediate understanding or collective understanding. And that was really nice. Amy's quick to add, she understood the version of Korean culture she was getting was superficial. Her parents did incorporate Korean culture in other ways. When she was in kindergarten, she was getting a lot of questions about her background and kids were picking on her. So her mom went to the principal and said, we'd like to have an afternoon in Amy's class where we talk about Korea and adoption and cook some Korean food. Amy and her mom brought in the ingredients for mandu, Korean dumplings. We would have like Korean candies that we would get at the one Asian food store that was in upstate New York at that time. And uh, the kids would learn, like, how to use chopsticks with marshmallows, and then we would make mandu, and they would all get to eat some of it. So they were getting exposed to that. Do you remember being nervous that what if all the kids said your food was gross? I don't have any memories of having that fear. I think I loved Korean food so much, and I enjoyed these things. Maybe if I hadn't gone to culture camp and I already knew there was this community of people who liked all this stuff already— Kids at that age can be pretty picky, but I I definitely think that some kids really enjoyed it. And I think there's something really powerful about that feeling accepted when there's this thing um, that you can share with them and they don't reject. It became an annual thing. Every year, Amy's mom would come into class and together they do a presentation at Korea and serve Korean food. Amy says over time, it helped. 
I have memories of someone who hadn't been in my class asking me something and having other kids be like, oh, you don't know Amy's adopted from Korea? Like, you know, <laughs> and so it really did build up this knowledge uh, across my, my classmates. So Amy had some exposure to Korean food and culture. She was proud of it. But as she got older, she still had more questions than answers. Skylar did too. I remember going to college and thinking, oh great, this is a time for me to really understand who I am and figure out my Koreanness, Korean identity. This is Skylar again. So I remember going to a Korean Students Association gathering and walking in and being like, wow, everybody looks like me. And then immediately people started speaking in Korean. And I was like, wow, I am not, this is not for me. That first initial college experience also drove me to question like, okay, well, I'm not white. I'm not Korean American. I'm some kind of like hybrid in the middle. When Skylar graduated college, she made a big decision. She bought a one-way ticket to Seoul. She didn't know how long she'd stay, but she knew she had to go. And when she got there, she was hungry. Got off the plane with, I just had like a backpack with me. And immediately I was like, great, I'm going to like get some some bulgogi, some japchae. You know, I like, my mind went immediately back to culture camp experiences. You know, what's something quick and easy I can get? And I went into this department store. And in the basement, they, in all department stores, most of them in Korea, they're like massive food courts. And there's tons of people waiting in lines with trays, beautiful, elegant department store stalls with heaps of food that I had never seen before. There was like a fish market and a meat section and, um, you know, candy and, and everyone's rushing by me. I don't speak any Korean. And no one seems to be responding to it. There was like a weird number system, like you had to pick a ticket or something. And I couldn't figure out, I was too shy to, to ask in English how to get in line. I'm trying to think of a good metaphor, but it was like being, uh, I know there's like a classic kind of cliche. Like It sounds like it's kind of like being in a foreign country. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it was probably, probably just like that. So I think I panicked and I left and I went to a 7-Eleven <laughs> around the corner. <laughs> And I just got like a sandwich, you know, a sandwich wrapped in plastic because that was the easiest thing to, to, to just, you know. And, and I think I also got a uh, can of Pringles. <laughs> <laughs> and as you ate that sandwich and those Pringles, what were you thinking? Um, I definitely felt defeated. But also this kind of like existential crisis of like, oh, I'm finally in this country where I was born and everyone around me looks like me and there's all this amazing food to be had and it looks beautiful and I can't eat any of it and I can't figure out how I I can to just do the most basic thing of feeding myself and I definitely knew right then that my time in Korea was going to be a struggle. When Skylar left for Korea, she didn't know for sure whether she'd try to contact her birth parents. But after six months there, she decided to give it a shot. Her adoptive parents encouraged her to do it. So the way it works is Skylar requests a meeting through the adoption agency and then writes a letter to her birth mother. The agency delivers the letter and then it's up to the mother to decide if she wants to meet. Skylar waited a month to hear back. Finally, she got the answer. Her birth mother said yes. 
Then she had to wait another four days for the meeting. I got an email that was like, we found your family. Do you want to meet them on Friday? And this was like a Monday. And I agreed and then just was an emotional mess from Monday till Friday. <laughs> like, uh, it, was, it was something you just can't fully prepare for. And it, uh, it, was, it was pretty intense. They first met at the adoption agency with a translator. Skylar's birth father and older sister also came. At that meeting, Skylar found out she had a younger brother, too. So her birth parents had another kid after her that they kept. After talking for a while, they went out to a restaurant. The adoption agency was like, okay, bye. <laughs> like, go be a family. And kind of released us into the world. And um, my parents and older sister took me to a restaurant. It was a Korean barbecue place around the corner. Do they speak any English? No. My older sister spoke a little bit, but very, very basic. As probably more, she knew more English than I knew Korean, but it wasn't like we could have profound conversation. It was like, what kind of Korean food do you like? Probably was like the first thing. And we had Korean barbecue and I sat next to my, my mother and she did the Korean mother thing of preparing a little bite of food for me and kind of like feeding me. I knew that was kind of like a thing that happened in Korean culture, but it seemed like way too intimate to be comfortable with at that moment. It was like, hey, like, I know technically you're my mother, but like we just met. <laughs> so uh, being you, you mean li literally put the food in your mouth yeah, yeah. with her hand? Mm-hmm. It's common for a Korean mother to hand-feed her child. And in some families, it is done into adulthood, at least in a sort of symbolic way in certain settings. So Skylar says, despite some awkwardness, that first meeting went pretty well. She started spending more time with her family. But the language barrier made it tough to really connect. Sharing food was one of the few activities they could do together. Amy, meanwhile, followed a similar path. After college, she moved to Korea and connected with her birth mother, who by then had split up with her birth father. After that first meeting, Amy visited her family in the more rural area where they live. They would get me McDonald's takeout for lunch. And I don't eat McDonald's in the States. <laughs> so I had to like accept it because I didn't want to reject something at that stage. I wasn't super close with them yet and didn't know how to negotiate that. So I would just eat it. But it was so weird because I'm like in the middle of like a much more rural part of Korea eating McDonald's for lunch. Uh, and how yeah. did it make you feel that that's what they brought you? <laughs> I think I understood really best intentions and that they were bending over backwards to make me feel as comfortable as possible. At one point early on, Amy's birth mother also fed her by hand. For Amy, it was awkward, as you might expect, but it was also meaningful. This is what we can do now. You know, we can't make up all of those years. There's no way, right? And so we can focus on what we can do now. And what that is, is allowing her to feed me and, and her feeling good about that and feeling like there's some element of, of care and for me to accept that care. Amy began calling her birth mother Oma, Korean for mom. Man, she began eating lots of Oma's cooking. I think the biggest thing was my Oma's chapchae, which is just the best. Japchae is glass noodles made from sweet potatoes. They're stir-fried with soy sauce, sesame oil, sugar, spices, vegetables, and sometimes meat. Back in culture camp, it was Amy's favorite. But her oma's japchae was on another level. 
it really it just really fresh. Like I feel like the chapche I had in Culture Camp was made in massive quantities. You know, there's these these glass noodles, right? And so if they are refrigerated or if they are out a bit, they start getting cloudy and like rubbery. And so yeah, it was just really good and not mass made for like forty campers at a culture camp. So so there's this food that you had had a version of in the U.S. growing up that was one of your favorite Korean foods. Then you end up in Korea as an adult eating a way better version of that, <laughs> but of that same dish yeah. made by your Oma. In that moment, eating that food in Korea, like when you then look back on the experience of eating that food in culture camp, how did it make you feel about that experience? Yeah, I, I I think there's a lot to reflect upon in that um, it, it may have felt like it had legitimized my experience in culture camp. So this was like a thing that they did that I thought that Koreans did because I had it growing up. But like, this is happening. This is really happening in real life. <laughs> this is a real person doing it. Right. I think it was just exciting to eat a thing that I already liked and knew what it was that my Oma makes and makes really well. Skylar connected with her birth mother's home cooking, too. Back in culture camp, the kimchi was syrupy and sweet. But at her mom's house? It was spicy. It was, like, intense. It was kind of that, like, real Korean, not watered-down kimchi that I would hope for. <laughs> I hate the word authentic, but I think that there was something kind of gritty and country about it that I really liked. And it wasn't like, oh, wow, I'm wrapped in the arms of my biological mother eating her kimchi. It wasn't like this totally transcendent experience, but it was salty and spicy and kind of fishy, kind of raw, and I appreciated that a lot. Both Skylar and Amy came back from Korea with a much stronger connection to their roots. But figuring out their relationship to those roots, that's an ongoing process. There are some Korean adoptees who've gone back there and stayed. Others, like Skylar's adoptive brother, say they have no interest in going back at all. Skylar's got a group of friends in Brooklyn who are all Korean adoptees. They get together every so often and cook Korean dishes. In some ways, it's an adult version of the Ethiopian kids making injera. We had celebrated the Lunar New Year together and cooked mandu dumplings. Another event, we, we made kimchi together. We like rolled out a big white sheet on the floor and like all took our shoes off and bought, you know, the giant Napa cabbage heads and immersed them in these buckets of water and salt and, you know, did all the steps of making as authentic as we can. The whole while watching this YouTube series by this woman, Manchi, I think is her name. Hi, everybody. Today we are going to learn how to make Korean traditional kimchi. The woman's name is actually Mangji, and her YouTube cooking videos get millions of views. There are so many hundreds of different kinds of kimchi. This is going to be. She is this like super cute, glammed up Korean lady. She's fabulous, and she kind of walked us through how to make kimchi at home. And so it was this kind of very millennial uh, American moment watching a YouTube video about our ancient culture of origin of, like, how to make kimchi. So, uh, and yeah. And how, how did you guys feel about that experience? Oh, it was beautiful. I mean, it was so fun to to 
be making ritual together. That is a unique Korean-American adoptee activity and teach ourselves, like bring ourselves up in America as Korean-Americans because our, our white parents maybe aren't able to do that for us. We fought for that. We like taught ourselves how to have an understanding of that part of our identity that was lost. Do you think your adoptive parents understand that feeling? I think they do. I think as parents, you know, they are protective. They want what's best for their kids. And often there is this kind of fairy tale narrative of adoption that it's this beautiful thing. Our family transcends cultural, racial boundaries. And, you know, we are a happy family. And that's absolutely true. And I believe that. And my parents believe that. What's often left out of the conversation is that adoption is also inextricably connected to trauma and loss. It's both things. And it's not until reaching adulthood and reconnecting with my biological family that I was conscious of that other half. I asked Amy what advice she'd give to parents who've adopted kids from other cultures. At the end of the day, for a parent to be engaging with food from the place that their kid has been adopted from is definitely better than not. But regardless of what they do, there is still some loss that they cannot even fully heal for that person. That's the journey that they have to take. I think what's the most helpful for adoptees is when parents acknowledge that they can only do so much. The story you heard today comes from The Sporkful. It's part of their wonderful series, Your Mom's Food, which has more stories about food and family and culture that I think you will love. You can find it all at thesporkful.com or go to your favorite podcast app like Stitcher or Apple Podcasts and search for The Sporkful. Today's story was produced by Dan Pashman and Ann Sani. It was edited by Dan Charles. Rebecca Carroll, Nicole Chung, and Peter Clowney provided additional editorial support. Chris Bannon and Jenny Radelet are executive producers of The Sporkful. You guys, the longest, shortest time, we'll be back with a whole new season of episodes in just a couple of weeks, starting October 11th. And we've got some really big stuff in store for you. We are also still looking for your weird parenting wins for our upcoming book. So keep them coming. Uh, Maybe you've got some wins about eating. We're also still really looking for more wins about keeping up your sex lives as parents. You guys, I really want to do this chapter so badly, but we don't have enough submissions on this topic. So you got to send them in. We're especially interested in hearing from co-sleepers. Co-sleepers, how do you keep up your sex lives? You've told me that you do it and I want to hear. Don't be shy. You can be anonymous when you submit these. Just put anonymous when we ask for your name. Submit your wins at weirdparentingwins.com. We have some amazing new merch that just came into the shop. Uh, I'll give you a hint. It is related to the Casey Wilson and Jesse Klein episode. We're going to be giving away three of those things to some lucky newsletter subscribers. So go sign up now at our website for your chance to win. And of course, we are always looking for your stories about family and parenthood. Go to longestshortesttime.com and submit your story. I'm standing outside Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. Inside, there are like a trillion objects, and I have to go in there 
and find 10. So we open a drawer here, and there's Indiana Jones's jacket and Indiana Jones's whip. What is this? Now Prince donated this guitar. <gasps> I'm Asif Manvi, and I am lost at the Smithsonian. Where do I begin? This place is obviously full of fascinating stuff. Fonzie's jacket, right. worn by Henry Winkler on Happy Days. There are 156 million objects in the Smithsonian's collections. Here are Muppets. These aren't just objects. They're pieces of America's self-identity. I'm looking at a, a robe with the name Muhammad Ali. Only 10 episodes, only 10 objects. That's pretty amazing. Lost of the Smithsonian is out now. Subscribe now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.